Blog Talk Radio. This is the Mike Savella Radio Program for Monday, January 26, 2014. This is episode 334. Coming up on tonight's show, my guest uh, coming up in just a few minutes uh, will be our good friend, Dr. Carla Booker, who is the Director of Women's Health Education for the Gwinnett Medical Center in Georgia. But tonight exclusively on this program. Uh, We will be sharing a love story, a love story between two people and a love story among a community of people. And from sadness comes joy, appreciation, and recognition. So let's do this, America. Episode 334 of the Mike Savilla Radio Program starts right now. Um, this year, one of my commitments and, and a great interest is to be more engaged with you as leaders, chapter leaders, uh, and, and our frontline membership. Uh, on, on Monday, a Twitter handle, I'm privileged to be the first one to hold, uh, at AFPPrez, P-R-E-Z. I already have 29 followers. I feel so proud. Um, I have a long, long way to go to catch up to uh, our current student board member, Kevin Bernstein, who has a little over 1,000, um, and our, uh, our king of family medicine social media, uh, Mike Sevilla, who has nearly 7,000 uh, members. about medicine and social media. This is the Mike Savella Radio Program. I am your host, the one-man social media machine for almost nine years on the Internet. That's right, kids. Can you believe that? You can check out more stuff about me at drmikesavella.com. And what is this show about? This is commentary about medicine, social media, and life. Today is Monday, January 26th. 2015. It is 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And here at Family Medicine Rocks World Headquarters, it feels like 7 degrees Fahrenheit. That's right. I mean, it could be worse. could be living west, or I'm sorry, east of here. Uh, But it is chilly. It was snowing here today, um, but uh, not as much as uh, in New England. So thank you for joining us here, either live or listening on the archived podcast. Uh, yes, it's it's been a while since I've uh, had a live show like this. I appreciate everybody uh, staying around and uh, and uh, all your emails and Facebook messages about uh, bringing back the show. So uh, hopefully this will uh, start me up again on uh, on uh, doing the show here uh, uh, more often. But uh, thank you everybody out there for your continued support of of my social media projects and the show here. So um, so my guest uh, coming up in just a few minutes here 
Um, I do want to give a little bit of background information uh, for people who may not be familiar uh, with the story. This story kind of just has popped up, uh, for me at least, in the past uh, two, three weeks. Uh, so my guest coming up in just a few minutes will be Dr. Carla Booker. Um, as I said before, she serves uh, as the Gwinnett Medical Center's Director of Women's Health Education, uh, and she earned her medical degree in Nashville at the Meharry Medical College and completed her first residency in OBGYN at the Georgia Baptist Medical Center as well as a family medicine residency at the Morehouse School of Medicine. But how I became more familiar with her uh, is from all my awesome social media friends out there, a lot of you who are listening here this evening. Um, and I saw this article, and, and you can see this on drmikeseville.com, uh, an article from the Richmond uh, Free Press from October 31, 2014, uh, which is uh, three months ago from when this show is recorded. Uh, the article talks about a wedding between two friends, Carla Booker and Kent Smith. There's a link uh, to the article at drmikeseville.com. Uh, and here's the key quote that really stuck out for me. Quote, uh, a brain tumor and cancer were no match for the couple's wedding joy. Their love of 40 years in the making would not be stopped by his diagnosis of a brain tumor and stage four lung cancer just four weeks earlier. Uh, and on January 6, 2015, which is just three weeks ago, uh, Kent passed away, uh, which was only 14 weeks following his cancer diagnosis. Uh, in the days following this, um, I saw something very unique on social media from uh, from friends of uh, Carla and Kent. And what was that? Well, I will have her share that with you in, in just a few minutes. But first, um, I do want to thank Blog Talk Radio uh, for having me be a featured host on this network. I've been a social media hobbyist since 2005. And if you're curious, yes, I'm a real doctor. Um, I am a family physician in full-time private practice uh, here in northeastern Ohio. And uh, at this point, I will take my break. And uh, after this brief musical break, um, we will be having uh, Dr. Carla Booker uh, join us to share her story. You're listening to the Mike Savilla Radio Program, a proud member of the ProMed Network of Podcasts. You can get there by going to ProMedNetwork.com, and we will be right back. And this is social media through the eyes of a family physician. This is the uh, Mike Savilla radio program. And on the line with me uh, is somebody who I'm looking forward to getting uh, uh, to know better. Uh, Dr. Carla Booker is joining us. Carla, welcome to the program. Well, Mike, thank you so much for just the opportunity. It's really great. Uh, first of all, my condolences to you and your family uh, during this uh, uh, very difficult time. Well, thank you so much for that as well. Um, uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, but this uh, this this program is is uh, uh, not to bring more sadness, but but to hopefully bring some hope and, and honor and appreciation to your story here. Um, and I do want to talk about this Hagen Dazs thing, uh, which I've been seeing all over <laughs> Facebook. I'm very excited about that. Um, yeah. But uh, but before we talk about that, um, 
Carla, when when people ask you um, about the, uh, the the Carla and Kent uh, story, um, well, what do you share with them? Well, the, the the greatest thing about this is, you know, Kent and I were boyfriend and girlfriend in the fifth grade in Marin County, California, um, and uh, we love each other. I mean, I can remember, you know, this really cool guy in my class who was my brother's best friend and um, liking him, that kind of first kind of crush kind of feeling and feeling really protected and safe with him and proud of him. He was a great athlete and he was really funny. Um, we lost each other after college um, and reconnected on Facebook in 2012 and then really reconnected when my daughter got married in May of 2013 and um, started a really great friendship. And I was just impressed with his wisdom. I think I'm a person who knows everything. And here's this guy who, you know, is offering me knowledge and information and stuff that I'd never heard. And he came to visit me here. He was in Richmond, Virginia. Came to visit me here in Atlanta for the first time of the week of Fourth of July, and it's just been a whirlwind romance ever since. Um, so, forty years in the making for real. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, what kind of uh, uh, drew you towards him, uh, and what was the what was the attraction from from your point of view? Well, on Facebook, what I noticed that May of 2013 was Kent posted a picture of him smoking his last cigarette. And I just thought that was so brave, you know. Um, and I sent him a message telling him I thought so. And he then said, you know, that uh, he, he knew that my, my husband and I would be really proud of our daughter's wedding. And I told him I wasn't married. And um, he said, I'm on my way. And I said, come on. So we started kind of communicating mostly about the really deep philosophical things. We talked about, um, you know, what is, what's a, what is family? You know, what is love and what does it look like? You know, what is love as a verb versus love as a noun? Um, and he always said that very few people dwelled, you know, really dwelled in our lives on the court, real life at the depths that we did. And that just got me. You know, somebody who just didn't want to talk about, you know, um, talk shows or sports, but somebody who really was about, like I'm about, the depth of the human spirit. Uh, and so I, so I guess going back, I mean, you, so you, um, I, I guess it, you said it was 40 years in the making, so you, you, you mm-hmm. kind of had a familiarity with him uh, and um, just started communicating. So, so these conversations in in 2013 they were just on a a wide variety of topics i mean there was no topic that was off limits or anything like that nothing at all and i think because you know our families were so close and because you know we again shared this childhood friendship we kept in touch every summer my grandmother lives in uh lived in richmond and so we had an opportunity to see each other up until about 18 years old so i kind of knew him but then to see him as a grown man with this, you know, we talked about everything. We had a very eclectic um, musical uh, repertoire, and we shared music together. You know, of course, we did a lot of Skyping. Spent, you know, a lot of time Skyping and wake up in the morning, do our devotionals together and meditate together. And um, we just uh, spent, really, the Internet is how we were able to have a relationship and fall in love. Wow, wow. And, and I talk to a lot of people that um that kind of get to know someone uh through the internet and there's kind of a um um I, I don't know. 
some people say that it really kind of uh, breaks some walls down, or some people say that it's a little bit more difficult uh, to communicate uh, like that. Um, but, but I guess from your point of view, um, that was a great way to kind of exchange ideas and to, to share ideas and to share feelings to, to really get to know each other better, I would guess. Well, it's interesting. You know, he said that if he had been here in Atlanta the way I was working, um, that we would never have had a relationship <laughs> so that um, we were able to, I had to carve out time, you know, and, and I don't think I've done that for my children, but I don't really know if I've done that. Even even the way that I've done it with my friend since I met him, you know, he had me kind of stop and look at my life and really reprioritize what was important. Um, he was an early to bed person. I stayed up really late. So I needed to be home by 10 so we could Skype so I could have that time with him every day. And it was being able to, it gave me a chance to prioritize. Um, I think it was also really great because it didn't matter what I was, what I looked like or how my house looked or whatever was going on. I was just kind of laid bare before him and he made it so safe for me to be vulnerable and I just couldn't help but fall in love. One of the things I'll tell you, I knew when I really was in love with him, he was always asking me about motive. You know, he said that before we do things, it's important to stop and ask ourselves why. Because so much of who we are, particularly at 50 now, with so much reflex, you know, my neuronal pathways are already set. But, you know, he really always asked me, well, tell me why. You know, what, what's the motive behind that? What, what would that conversation, how would it forward the conversation? How would it forward your relationship with this person? And he always said to me, and I can remember him even at the end when he wasn't communicating very much, you know, I'd say, well, baby, I just want to talk to you. And he would say to me, sweetheart, you know what I'm going to say. And it's so true. Wow. You know, he would, he would always say, People have a right to their feelings. They have a right to their opinions. And more so, what he was saying was not just a right, but that it was my responsibility as a human being wanting to be in connection with them to be willing to look at it from their perspective and not to decide that whatever they were saying or thinking was wrong or judge it from my perspective. And when I think about that now globally, imagine what that would be like if we really looked at each other and said, well, you have a right to your feeling. Let me go over there and stand in your shoes. How much war would there be? How much divorce would there be? How much disconnect with our children would there be? Would people not then be more willing to communicate with one another? So whereas I think people think of Facebook as some crazy out there, you know, thing, or I think of Skype as some, you know, opportunity to be, you know, bad people, I see the Internet as an opportunity for it for us to connect with people with no boundaries and no walls. And it seems like that uh, you know, when you were reconnecting with him, that you were um, – he was able to um, – how should I say this? Um, uh, really get to you as far as um, having you learn things about yourself that you probably yes. didn't know – um, or give you insights or points of view um, that only somebody who would love you uh, would give you. Absolutely. You know, I just really got in the last week that Kent raised me, you know, almost, I would say, prepared me, developed me, um, moved me into being the woman who could take care of him at the end, and he didn't even know he was doing it. You know, he really brought out things in me and, and gave me a safe place to explore myself and be vulnerable 
and really connect with him so that then when his you know his his psychological person wasn't as in connection with me as it had been you know the romance and all that i looked at that man and i saw his soul all the time because that's all he ever shared with me was his soul and nothing else was important and he really had me seeing that this body is just a way that something that carries our souls around a way that we can bump into one another but it's not really who we are and you talked a little bit about this already. I mean, the 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 strength uh, of your faith, of your spirituality, of your connection with Him. Can you talk a little bit about it? How how that part of of both of your lives kind of helped help develop your relationship? Well, you know, I'm a I'm a physician, and and at first I was an OBGYN doc, and absolutely love bringing life into the world and delivering babies, and just decided to make a career change and become a family physician, and I really get you know, that I, I call myself a dream weaver to my patients, you know, that my job is to make your dreams come true. And I can throw pills at you all day long, but if I don't know who you are and I don't know where you live and I don't know where you hurt and I don't know your insecurities and I don't know what you love most and I don't love what your hobbies are and know what those things are, then I really can't put the whole, the whole picture together and really give you an opportunity to make your dreams come true. Well, Kent's way of doing that was through counseling. He worked as a business developer for a counseling service in Richmond called River City Comprehensive Counseling, oh, and he was about okay. the same thing. You know, his his focus and his love and his passion was for um, for convicted felons. And so part of what his company um, did was to make halfway houses available to work on anti-recidivism programs. He believed that 75% of all people that have been incarcerated are mentally ill and undiagnosed. So they provided housing, transportation to medical appointments, someone to, you know, keep people compliant with their medication to give them an opportunity for their dreams to come true. So there was that passion that we both believed that if we will be willing, really willing to let God work through us, then people's lives could be changed. Wow. I mean, that's, um, um, wow, that's, that's very powerful work. Um, yeah. And it's very emotional type of work, um, yes. you know, not not only what he does, but what we do. Um, right. And uh, at, at I guess at, at the end of the day, when you're skyping, um, that, that that has to be. Um, I don't know if you guys talked about work at all, but I mean that that has to be in uh, a very challenging thing trying to. I would guess um, support each other through that because that is uh, I can't even imagine what the, the type of, of of cases and the type of people and the type of situations that that the both of you kind of went through at work um, right. trying to develop this personal relationship. Exactly. Well, you know, I think that um, it was great because we were both in we both are in helping fields, you know, and where and we also I think are very dedicated to the little guy. You know, I, we both believe that there are some folks that are just going to get the best of everything no matter what, and that's not, that's not where I can make a difference. You know, I can make a difference with people who don't even know how great they are. You know, and one thing that Kent said oh, – go ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. Say, You up. know, one thing that Kent, you know, said to me all the time was, you know, have I told you how much I love you today? You know, he really got that it was important for us to say I love you to each other every day. And uh, something that I've been sharing with people since he passed away was to do something to, for, or with the people that are most important every day that says, I love you. To, for, or with. Wow. Wow. You know, and that's who he was. I mean, you know, shared at his service in Richmond on Saturday that, 
you know, the things he would say was, have I told you how much I love you today? And for me, he told me every single day that I was the most beautiful woman in the world. And I just couldn't hear mm-hmm. it enough. <laughs> it was important to him, you know, that he, and you know, you know, in some relationships, you know, as particularly as women, I think, we want our dude to say every day, I love you. And and a guy will say, well, I've already told you, you that you're beautiful or, or I've already told you that I like that dress on you. But it was so important. He kept it fresh and new and, and kept that smile on my face and alive every day. Partly, I think, because we weren't together. But then, you know, on the weekends, he still would say it. I'd wake up in the morning, there he was looking at me. Or sometimes we Skype slept together. So I'd wake up in the morning, he'd wake me up at 6 o'clock to saying to me, good morning, baby, it's time to get up. Because we're Skyping. So we would be together. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was amazing. You know, and then, you know, when he got sick, I was still here, new on the job, that I had gotten this new job at Gwinnett in order to be able to provide time for my husband. You know, yeah. and so I had no time accrued, so I was going back and forth, and we were still connecting on Skype like we hadn't missed a beat. He's in the hospital, yeah. and there, there we are Skyping. I'm at the office Skyping with his oncologist who came in to talk about the findings of an exam. So it was so much the way that we worked that it was like we really didn't, mm-hmm. we didn't miss a beat. Um, I guess on the line is uh, Dr. Carla Booker, and uh, we're talking about her story uh, with Kent, and, and we will be talking about uh, this hashtag, Hagadahs, uh, for Kent, <laughs> uh, in a few minutes. Um, but I, I wanted to kind of shift things towards I, I, how did you know or, or how did the both of you know that, that this was kind of moving towards uh, a marriage or a, a, a formality of your relationship? So... Um... He started talking about it pretty early, I think. Um, he told me he loved me first. Guys, I suggest that. I think that uh, the guy saying it first means something. Um, it scared me to death. Um, whoa, 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 and he whoa, whoa, whoa. Started... Really? Wait, wait a minute. Wait. <laughs> yeah. that when the guy says it first? Is that... The guy should say it first. <laughs> we would have a debate on that. I don't know. <laughs> the guy should totally say it first because we are, as women, uh, we already feel it. We already feel it, and we're afraid to say it. I think a man leads, and I think that would be a great gateway for a guy to lead, for you, the guy to put it out there. Because I'm going to tell you, it was the first, thing, first time it ever happened to me. And I just, it just felt like I was falling into step with something. I wasn't risking anything. You know, I think as women, we feel like that sometimes, you know. He said it first, and I lovingly didn't say, I love you too, right away. I like really stopped. Right. Just like he said, what's the motive? When I say it, I want to say it because it's absolutely true. And it didn't take me long. I'm sure I said it before we got off the phone. But he also said that our love existed before the beginning of time. And he said that a lot. And I was like, eh, I don't know if I got it. You know, I don't know if I was thinking that big. I don't know if I was Mm -hmm. thinking that eternal. He wrote me this beautiful poem poem called um, As We Should Be. And it was this whole poem about, you know, that our love powers the orbit of the planets and, you know, the bigness of what love really is and what true love is between two people, be they, you know, siblings or parents or or the love of a man and a woman or love of a romantic kind of a love. But imagine that. If you really get that you're loving someone, powers planets and has existed forever and it is timeless. You know, he started talking like that and I mean, I was smitten, you know, it was, it was fantastic. Um, so we started talking about marriage, maybe Christmas of last year, 
Christmas of 2013. Okay. And then around Super yeah. Bowl, we start, he started taking me to look at rings, and he wanted to pick. He, he definitely wanted to pick. So he had me try on a few rings and talk about them out loud is what he asked me to do. Try it on and then tell me what it feels like. What does it look like to you? What do you like about it? What do you not like about it? And in that order. And I was almost like he was taking mental notes, you know, and I kept praying. I found the one I liked, and I said, well, I hope he picks this one. So I, you know, really, you know, talked that one up. And sure enough, you know, that's the one that he picked. And he surprised me. He um, proposed to me on his 50, uh, 52nd birthday. When I had planned this big trip to, um, to Durham, North Carolina, and we went to see our, great, our favorite artist, Gregory Porter, sing. I became our love song, Wolf Cry. I played it at the services. It was going to be the, we- the wedding song. Um, and I cried in his arms, you know, he t- and I looked at the video of the proposal and I, I said, oh, my God, about 25 times. And it was we were just elatedly, ecstatically, blissfully happy on that day. It was just I was so surprised. It was so fantastic. Wow. <laughs> hmm. And then and then the wedding planning after that, did did he kind of uh, take the lead uh, with that or what? How, how did that uh, work? He he did do a lot more pushing of actually like picking a date and and you know then he was still living in Richmond and when was he going to move to Atlanta and I was you know very nervous and very scared and oh my gosh he's going to give up everything you know he has no children but he has five five brothers there in Atlanta his father his um you know his family is there he's been there all his life and he's going to do all that and give all that up for little me and oh my gosh you know what if I mess this up and he'll have sacrificed everything so he was the one who was really trying to pick a date and all of that so we started talking about him moving to Atlanta in October and um, as the dates got closer and closer you know I was just getting all nervous and he's getting all nervous and we planned it the the 27th and 28th of September you know that was the end of his lease and he was going to give up his townhome and he was coming and uh, the plan was for us to marry um, we wanted to get married in June outside at his cousin's home on a lagoon we had it all planned out and uh, on a, so he was on a lagoon his his cousin we were going to get married in North Carolina at his cousin's wow. home who, on the lagoon, and we just had the wow. best times there. Yeah, really fantastic, really fantastic. <laughs> and you know, mm. the story went that you know he did move. He moved everything. He and I unpacked his uh, the the U-Haul. He packed up on the 27th that Saturday and came you know to Atlanta on the 28th. And I had everything waiting and his ch- shot of Jack Daniels and the jacuzzi and the most romantic weekend, right? And uh, get him back to get on the mega bus Monday morning at six o'clock in the morning. I remember handing him his coffee and his whatever breakfast I bought him in both hands. And he called me four hours later and said that his left hand was weak. He couldn't hold his coffee cup. We skyped. You know, he has high blood pressure. Make sure he didn't have a stroke. He didn't. Had a physical medicine rehab doc talk to him just to make sure we didn't need to stop that bus in North Carolina. She said, "No, no, I think he can make it to Richmond." And got off the bus in Richmond at six p.m. And uh, went immediately to the ER, and they called me within half an hour and said that he had three bleeding areas in his brain. Um, he didn't tell me at that time, but they had told him that it was metastatic cancer. So I hightailed it on a plane to uh, Richmond that night, and uh, the 29th of September, and got there and got off the plane and immediately started getting text messages from his dad, who's an ophthalmologist, about cancer. And the whole time I'm thinking this is, you know, a hemorrhagic stroke. But right, it ended right, up being, and and then I get there to the hospital, and I start thinking about all the little aches and pains he'd had, and it ended up being a primary lung, stage four, 
lung cancer with the brain metastasis and incurable, inoperable. So he moves to Atlanta, and in 24 hours from unpacking the truck, he has a terminal, you know, a terminal illness. Now, I mean, now thinking back, I mean, did did do you did you did you know, or did he did he have any symptoms prior to that day of the diagnosis? Mike, I swear, you know, he had he, he had um, there was a mass I felt on his lower back a couple times that was more tender than I thought it should have been. He went in to get a CT scan of that. He had an anaphylactic reaction to the CT dye, so they were unable to complete the study. And then six months went by, and he, I kept bothering him about it, and he kept saying, I'm a grown man, I'll take care of it. Um, no, no coughing up blood, no chronic cough, no weight loss. I'm telling you, he and I moved, you know, flat screen TVs and mattresses and heavy drawers and dressers out of that truck ourselves on that Sunday. Nothing. Hmm. Absolutely no. We thought there might have been something made a little bit of weakness one day, but we were out in the hot sunshine and we had a couple of beers, you know, and we were having a good time at a jazz festival and got a little bit dizzy. Mm -hmm. But that's the only thing we could think of in the past, you know, six months prior and nothing at all, nothing to let us know. And then the weirdest presentation of a lung cancer, you've got just the hand is weak. Sensory was normal. The forearm, the elbow, the biceps, the shoulder, completely unaffected. Just extensor inflection of that right, of that left hand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. Of course, the tumor in that area caused caused um, you know the, the the weakness and and then you know he had a, a I guess I'll talk doctorish one little tumor tumor in the front frontal frontal parietal. And then one on the side, temporal parietal, and then he, on the right, and then he had one on the left that was cerebellar. And you would have thought he would have had some, you know, disturbances of gait, nothing. So those three areas so remote from one another let us know that there were microscopic tumors throughout his brain. So the first order of business was to protect his neurologic function, so he underwent 10 sessions of, uh, of whole brain radiation, knowing that there would be significant cognitive, you know, intellectual loss. But in order to you know to preserve his his neurologic function, that was the first order of business. And, and this and this diagnosis was a month before the wedding. Is that is that right? Well, it wasn't planned. You know, we we got married because his his um, condition deteriorated so quickly. You know, we uh, had to we okay. had to do because I didn't. We had to yeah, do, I wasn't sure right. of, of the time of the timeline of that. No, so was, we weren't so, planning to get so, married so, until June June of two thousand fifteen. I see. Mm-hmm. I see. So, so treatment was started right away. Then I presume. Then. No, we, you know, because we had to preserve the um, the neurologic function, we had the radiation first, and you can't have chemotherapy along with the radiation. So we had to delay the chemotherapy by two weeks for that. Completed that, met with the oncologist. Um, we decided to go for a second biopsy because you know there's all these new treatments for lung cancer that are DNA, genetic, molecular. And we didn't have enough tissue. He had so much tissue necrosis on his original biopsy of his mediastinal tumor that we didn't get enough to do the molecular marker. So we went back for another biopsy about 10 days uh, into the radiation, and he ended up with an infection, a huge empyema on his right lung about a week after that and ended up in the ICU and on the ventilator and thoracoscopy and three chest tubes. And when he came out of uh, surgery, and woke up and got him off the vent. We decided to get married that Monday. Wow, 
Wow. So then formal so, of antibiotics. So, of course, you can't start chemotherapy while you're on antibiotics with a severe infection. So there's another four-week delay on chemotherapy. So, you know, just uh, wow. some complications kind of precluded immediate treatment. Yeah, so 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 for for all the the, the non medical people out there, I mean, so just to kind of just to kind of translate, uh, so so we had this diagnosis, and and uh, so what needed to happen was there had to be testing that was done. It sounds like there was some uh, complications, uh, following it that had to be all cleaned up uh, to get the definite diagnosis and and to get things a little bit more stabilized before they could definitely start treatment of the cancer. And and uh, right. um, so I, I, I guess my my question is uh, to you it's um what uh it's it's it, it, is it good or bad to to have all this uh, knowledge and training as a physician um as your loved one is is kind of uh, going through this uh going through this process great question so um he says i saved his life so many times he couldn't count it um what i'll tell you is and anybody who knows me i'm sort of dogged about things um, I'm very fastidious. I can be pushy. I might even be a little brash at times. But uh, I'll tell you, you know. You know what? I'll, I'll... <laughs> <laughs> so I'll get on the Internet and read something and call my colleagues and pull out the textbooks. And I know a little bit of, you know, I know somebody in every specialty. I've got best, a best friend who's an oncologist call Dr. Sarmiento to ask her about what does she think all the time. Um, Kent's, uh, you know, first cousin who's like his sister is a pathologist in North Carolina, Dr. Valerie Fields, and caught her on the phone. So I was, I think I got on the nerves. I, I really think I did. I think it's probably easier to take care of a patient who doesn't have medical folks in their family because, you know, we, we're kind of egotistical as physicians too. You know, we know some stuff, and we're used to making decisions and having people kind of do what we say. And I, I, exactly. I suggested the second biopsy. You know, I said I want to go for the molecular. I, I, I pushed a lot. So I'm going to say from my husband's perspective, it was the greatest thing in the world. From my perspective, I think it was a way that I could manage kind of my fear and my sadness by rolling into doctor mode because I, I, I felt like I was – there was no way I was going to fall apart as Dr. Booker. There was certainly a way that I could fall apart as Carla Booker, Kent Smith's fiance. And um, that's some lessons I learned over the over the time period, too, to let myself be Mrs. Smith. And at the service, I asked the people who love me to hold me to that and hold me to account to be more Mrs. Smith than I was Dr. Booker. And at the end, that very last week, my therapist said to me, be Mrs. Smith and let his physicians be his physicians. So it was a great lesson. But going through it, I think it was beneficial from a lot of perspectives for me to know as much as I did and know the people I knew and ask the questions I did and push for, for, for things that he otherwise would not have gotten. So I, I guess now does that, does that give you a, uh, a different perspective when, when, when patients um, ask things or, or feel it may be, uh, become empowered if they um, you know, ask for a second opinion or if they bring in information from wherever um, to give that kind of point of view, you know, cause you know, cause I'll, you know, a lot of these patients, you know, that they, they don't have the training that we have, but, but they, but they do know how to get information and, and they want to feel 
a little bit empowered in, in a powerless situation. Uh, I guess that, that would give you a, a, a different perspective now um, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. a physician mm-hmm. when, when patients present you with some of that stuff. Um, I do. I think you're right. You know, I, I like to think of myself as someone who I know when I was going to, you know, in GYN, when I was going to operate on someone, I'd always say, I encourage you to get a second opinion. You know, I want you to walk into the operating room with me knowing that, you know, we were doing the right thing. So I'd like to think that I wouldn't, wasn't that egotistical. But there have been times when people bring up articles or particularly stuff that they bring up that I haven't read where I might get a little bit, you know, get my, my, my hair must a little bit. But absolutely now it's – and I always worry a lot, too, going through this with Ken. Oh, my God, what if I hadn't known this? You know, at the end, I drew a CBC on him and took it to the office because he was anemic. You know, and that's what got him into the hospital that last week. If I had not drawn that CBC at my house and had the ability to do it and the knowledge it needed to be done, then Kent would have died at home in our bed, and I would have been none the wiser. So, you know, yeah, I, I, I worry sometimes that, you know, what's happening to the little guy because they don't have the knowledge. And as a physician, how can I do better to make sure, really make sure, you know, I do train my residents and students that, this is somebody's beloved, therefore you've got to treat them that way. You know, this is somebody's sister. This is somebody's daughter. This is someone's mother. And so, yeah, I think you're right, that, that for me now I, I'm looking at the little guy even or the uneducated or the less educated person in a whole different perspective to make sure that I'm treating them as if they were my own family member. Um, I guess on the line is uh, Dr. Carla Booker, and uh, we've been um – and she's been sharing her story, uh, the the Carla and Kent story. Um, so, so Carla, why don't you take us now through, um, you know, November and December and and ultimately January through the story. Okay. So um, Kent was in um, Richmond, finishing up that four weeks of outpatient IV antibiotics from the big infection on his on his right side of his lung. And then we had planned to get him down here to Atlanta because our plan was to build our life together here. And just before Thanksgiving, um, I went and got him. And it was so exciting. I was so excited. And, you know, having the house ready and already had a a very, very good family friend who was also a a certified nurse assistant that was going to come in and help during the day. And I'd be able to work and he'd be here at night. And my son was in college. He asked if if I needed him to come home. He came home so he could be there with Ken at night and I wouldn't be by myself. And it was just like, you know, the stars were lining up, you know, for, for my husband now. Oh, my God, and the wedding was so fantastic. Can I talk about the wedding for a second? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, talk, talk about <laughs> no, the wedding. No. And then, and then, I got to talk about the wedding. So, you know, he had to come off the ventilator that Friday uh, by 5 o'clock. You know, he was septic, meaning he had overwhelming infection in his blood. His blood pressure had dropped. His pulse rate was high. You know, he was in what we call septic shock that Thursday night. There was, they yeah. said there was no way this he was way coming off the ventilator. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> not good. Well, we were losing him Thursday night. And I prayed, yeah, yeah. and I, I contacted his cousin, and I prayed, and I read a scripture, and I got a sign that he was going to make it through the night. So they said if he didn't come off the ventilator by 5 o'clock on Friday, that there was no way we could get married, at least not get married in the Massey Cancer Center Healing Garden that we planned. Now, you know, Mike, what's the chances at 11 o'clock at night he's septic? and that he's off the ventilator by 5 o'clock the next day, pretty low. Exactly. Well, my husband was a mm-hmm. fighter. At quarter to 5, he came off the ventilator. I got a social worker to come in on that oh Saturday. Can you believe it? 
Yes. And we yeah. started weaning him with like by that morning and he was off the vent at quarter to five. Took pictures of everything coming off the vent. What he said what he said first thing he said coming off the vent was I feel like I got run over by a truck. Got pictures of it, it was fantastic. And um so and then I needed someone to sign an affidavit that he um that he was, you know, of, of sound mind and that he was could not make it to the courthouse in order to sign the the marriage license. Had to have a doctor a note from the doctor that he had a terminal illness. All of this stuff had to line up. We had all of that. The social worker came in on Saturday to to sign the affidavit with him, notarize everything. I was doing this two mile walk every day, so that Monday morning I walked from the hospital down to the courthouse to get our marriage license. Everybody knows me. I'm tardy to everything. I was there before they opened the door, the first one in the door, and we got the marriage license right. So they allowed us out of the ICU for one hour. From what we started at 12, and we had to leave the, the cancer center at one o'clock to get him back to the ICU. So it's a you know eight o'clock in the morning. I got the license, getting my dress together. My girlfriends came up from Atlanta, drove. People came down. My best friend from college came from New Jersey, and it was a beautiful day in October, the end of October, 72 degrees. Absolutely gorgeous, the Massey Cancer Center's Healing Garden, and there we are, and they're rolling him in, and I am grinning and smiling, and I've never felt more beautiful, and I have, you know, on my Facebook page, you can see videos of the vows and in t- with tears and, and you know, barely able to get the words out, you know, he became my husband, and I, I can't even remember the oxygen, you know, tube in his nose or the fact that he couldn't walk and was wheelchair-bound or the two chest tubes coming out of his side. As we, you know, do our, um, do, take our, you know, our, our first sips of, he had grape juice, I had champagne, bubbles, and we had a beautiful cake made by Nikki Prophet in 48 hours of notice. I mean, it was just the wedding of my dreams. And when we got back to the ICU, all the nurses were blowing bubbles for us and singing, here comes the bride. They had completely redecorated our ICU room with balloons and flowers, and we had a filet mignon dinner from the chef. I mean, it was the celebration of a lifetime. And then there was an article in the Richard Free Press within a week of this, you know, they say tragic, I say classically romantic love story of these two people who collided and fell in love. Did they they contact you beforehand? They started asking, I think, that morning if it would be okay if someone came to to get our story. And I, of course, conferred Uh, with my my fiancé at the time, and we said, let's do it. Because, again, he wanted to be sure that everybody knew that that this was possible, that true love exists, that, that, that nothing would stop us, that we would never lose our hope. So, yeah, they told us that morning that they wanted to come. And they didn't speak to either Kent or I. They spoke to our parents and got the whole story from our parents. Yeah, yeah. And that, so, and that was a great so, picture yeah. that they, they had on the paper there. Oh, thanks. We had wonderful, wonderful, wonderful pictures and videos. It was great. So I get him here at Thanksgiving. We have Thanksgiving dinner. He says, oh, baby, I'm so tired. I'm not going to come downstairs. So we started our dinner. Of course he came downstairs. Got pictures of him <laughs> having a little teeny little bit to eat. He started his chemotherapy that uh, that t- Thursday, the Thursday after Thanksgiving. We got our first dose of chemo, and he did great. You know, he he. They told him he'd have a little bit of extra extra pep in his step. He took me out for bagels and coffee that next Saturday. His brothers came down to visit that weekend. Um, it was great. It was just a great great weekend. Um, then you know, real deterioration. The next uh, chemo was three weeks later. So that was the Tuesday before, th- uh, before Christmas, and uh, they checked his blood count, and it was extremely low. So 
So we had planned to, to drive up to Richmond um, for Christmas Day, and I was kind of thinking that wasn't going to happen. But we were really stalwart. I mean, we really, you know, we, we kind of always held out a hope that things were going to go our way. So I got some blood transfusion that Christmas Eve. He came downstairs for a Christmas Eve dinner, and um, we drove to Richmond on Thursday, eight hours, uh, and were there wow. Christmas night and had Christmas with his family. It was beautiful. And uh, then, of course, the chemo hit him, and he just was in the bed for the rest of the weekend. We drove back on that Sunday, and uh, I said, you know, I better check his blood count on Monday. So that's what I did. I went to my office and got a purple-top tube and brought all the stuff back and, <laughs> and drew his blood. <laughs> it only took me two sticks. I got it, the rolling veins, and took the specimen back to the office. And uh, they called me at 12, 12 noon on that Tuesday, uh, must have been the 30th of December, that his hemoglobin was lower than it was the week before. So it went ahead. I was going to do everything at home, and that's when my therapist said, you be the, nurse, the wife. So we took him to the ER. His hemoglobin was even lower, and um, he required lots and lots of blood transfusions, platelet transfusions, and uh, we did a CT scan of his um, abdomen because he'd got started to be a little jaundiced, and the tumor had completely replaced his liver. So when we started wow. chemo three weeks prior, his liver was clean, and 25 days later, the chemotherapy had failed, and and uh, his liver was completely replaced by tumor. And I remember telling him, I think it was, it must have been New Year's Day. It was Thursday, New Year's Day. And I told him, um, baby, you know, the chemotherapy has failed. And he sat up and he said an expletive starting with an S. And he said, um, oh, baby, I'm so sorry. Imagine that. You're, you're, you just found out that you're, you're going to die now sooner than we thought, and he's apologizing to me, and that's yeah. the man he was. That's the man he was. And I said, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that there wasn't anything more that I could do. And he said, but we had a beautiful wedding, didn't we? And I said, oh, we did. He said, and we love each other. I said, yes, we do. And he said, I'm dying now. And I said, yes, my love. Yes, you are dying. And he kissed me. And he said, when can I go home? So he got his family there, and um, all the brothers came down. His dad came, and we started hospice on that Friday night. And he, got, he wanted to go home, didn't want to wait till the morning. And uh, we slept in the same bed that Friday night, and the, the hospital bed came that Saturday. And we had a lovely weekend. Family came down to see him, and his his godson, who was 10 years old, his nephew came early, early. It was that that Tuesday morning? And um, we had wonderful nursing at night, and, and the nurse told me that Tuesday morning I planned to go to work half a day because it was suggested by both my boss and my therapist that I not sit and look at him. And uh, then the nurse that morning said, uh-uh, I don't think today's the day. And so I went on to work, and um, I, got, was, I was FaceTiming with him at work, and, the, and my nurses were watching. Oh, yeah, they just changed his clothes. Oh, yeah, they just, you know, he's good, he's good. And I got a call about five minutes to one that he wasn't doing well. I finished my chart quickly, and I was grabbing my purse, and, and I got a call that they thought he had passed. And I zipped home. I got home 15 minutes after he passed away. And I kissed wow. his hands, and I kissed his face, and I told him I loved him. And I get that we were complete. You know, that morning we did our devotion, and he was very, very out of it, you know, on IV pain medicine, told me he loved me, and he kissed me. And I danced with him, and I played our favorite music, and I did a devotion with him. I hadn't done that in weeks. So I would say we were complete, and God knew. I don't know if I could have actually watched him take that very last breath. His father was with him. His brother was with him. 
it, w- there was nothing more to say. Um, I don't know if I could have watched it. So I've never felt, you know, like I missed out on anything or I'd let him down or anything. I was where I was supposed to be. He was where he was supposed to be. And and uh, and, and I, I feel really great about the way that it went. So that I mean, was it, last it, day. it sounds like you were you were, you were both at peace and you kind of knew and and I guess that's a, a tribute to 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 the connection that that the both yes. of you cultivated over the the past year plus um you kind of I think in, you said it earlier in the program that uh we maybe finishes each other's thought or each other's sentence yes. and and yes. you kind of knew without saying anything at all maybe just with a look um that um uh, that uh, you knew it was you both knew it was going to happen. You both were at peace, and and uh, um, this is uh, what is going to happen. Absolutely, and and you know, I I I really get that. You know, that was merely his body. I mean, it, it, everything that he ever said to me about our love and the eternal nature of it, and that you know, this is just a carcass. This is just something that holds our souls. And it's a way we bump into each other. Those were his words. So there I am, you know, with his his body and his soul having just so recently left it that there was just this real peace and that he didn't have to suffer. You know, he did say the week before that he was in so much pain and that there wasn't any suffering and that he was at home in our room and we made a home together as we had planned. Despite it all, we had the life that we that we wanted together. You know, and and he came and got in bed with me that Sunday night. It was really painful because he needed the hospital bed. But he just said he wanted to be close to me that that one more time. I think it was. And I don't know if I didn't tell you. You know, he's he left these post-it notes over my birthday last year. He started writing post-it notes, and I saw yeah, two over page. my over my birthday weekend. Right. Well, yeah. I've been finding them everywhere, Mike. He wrote. He left them between yeah. two frozen things of chicken in the freezer, and I don't cook. So I probably would have found those things cleaning out their freezer in two years, you know, saying, you know, we have a mighty love. It was because my housekeeper cleaned out the freezer. I found one uh, day before yesterday that said, um, you are my lovely lady, the most beautiful woman in the world. You know, it's it's amazing. And I can't wait to find the next one. You know, I'm finding stuff where he knew I would never see him in in a pile of clothes that needed to go to the dry cleaners for six months. I found you know, it's just, and it's like God knew that I was going to need those reminders of how much this man adored me, how precious I was to him, how how I got to experience true love in my life. Um, so, I mean, as you as you kind of look back, I mean, do you, is there anything that you would have changed, or do you, I mean, with your knowledge as a physician, is is uh, I would imagine there have been times where you maybe had some guilt or or those type of emotions during this process. Uh, I don't know. The only guilt I have, Mike, is I should have pushed him for that CT scan because there ended up being a tumor in um, in the muscle in his pelvis. So I don't get too technical, but the psoas muscle, you know that, Mike. There ended up being a tumor there. Right. So if we'd gotten right. that CT scan of the lower back, we would have seen it. Now, that would have still called, cost it a stage four, right? Right. And, and and maybe, you know, if I could have thought what I know now is what I'm pushing for now and the American Lung Association is a go for is a low-cost CT scan of the chest 
in high-risk individuals. Well, it hasn't caught on as the kind of screening that a mammogram would be for breast cancer, but that's the push. Right. You know, that right. as a 30-year smoker, he should have gotten a CT scan. If he'd gotten a CT scan once a year as a high-risk CT, even if there had been a – you pay half of it, we could have caught this thing at stage one. And, you know, just right. to give information about lung cancer, lung cancer is the number two lung cancer, um, both men and women. But altogether, it kills more people than colon, prostate, breast altogether. So it's, it's a bad boy. And by the time it's caught, it's stage three or four. Three and four are not operable. Four is inoperable, incurable. So had my husband been able to have just a screening CT scan a couple of years ago, we might have been able to catch that tumor when it was still confined to the lung and operable. So that's that maybe and the guilt over not pushing him to get that CT scan handled. Something in the chest, I don't think I could have, I can't think of anything I could have done differently about the chest itself. But if I'd gotten that CT of that, you know, lower back, I might have been able to find that thing before it got his, his brain. See, now that's where I, I kind of get upset because because we had to have all of that brain radiation, my husband, after the, the week after radiation, said, baby, I don't think I'm as smart as I used to be. Well, that's what brain radiation does. It kills off good tissue as well. So at the end, I don't think you know how to use his iPhone. You know, there are things that, you know, cognitively, you know, as far as his wit, you know, his personality, you know, he had the brain of like a 70 or 80-year-old person at the end because... You know, it had gotten it had spread so far, so fast that it had gotten to the brain. So that was my only guilt is that I should have pushed a little more as a girlfriend to get that back that back pain handled. Um, but you yeah. know, it happened the way it was supposed to happen. He, you know, we would say that acceptance is the key to all my problems today, and acceptance is you know accepting life as it comes and as it goes, and that's the way it went down, and I can live with that. Uh, my guest on the line uh, is uh, Dr. Carla Booker. And um, she's been sharing her story um, with Kent. Um, and uh, I want to shift things here because how I kind of started learning about this story uh, is one day in early January, I see all these pictures of Hagen dazs ice cream on my Facebook. <laughs> I'm like, what is going on with that? Um, so as we kind of shift the story, can, can you can you share with us kind of uh, Kent's love of Hagen Dazs and, and how that all came about? I sure will. So um, I always offered Kent food three times three times a day, as if it were time for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and he always declined. He was subsisting on Ensure and water. And um, once we came out of the hospital from hospice, he wasn't eating anything, really. And we agreed that we weren't going to push, we weren't going to force, we weren't going to cajole. But I offered him the food on that Saturday, the day after we came out of the hospital, as I normally would. And uh, early that morning, I had just gone on a kind of a wandering, kind of sad wandering through Walmart and thinking of all the things that he loved to eat. And I wanted to have them available so I could offer them to him. And one of his favorite things was haagen butter pecan ice cream. Not just any haagen but I got a butter pecan ice cream. So I bought a pint, put it in the freezer, and that night I asked him, I said, babe, I offered him, do you want to insure? Can I give you something, some food? And he said no, and he was really kind of out of it. And I said, well, babe, I, I got some haagen butter pecan ice cream. He perked up, looked at me. He said, yes, because I love that S expletive. <laughs> and their family was in the room. We were cracking up. We were laughing so loud. Like he was himself. Oh, it was so cool, you know. And he ate now, three spoonfuls did, did you know this of Hagen Dazs. <laughs> Say again. 
did you know this in the past, or this is like did, a did whole recent thing? Did he love Hagen does? Yeah, or did he love oh, Butter Pecan Hagen does? That's what that was his thing, you know. And so it was a special thing for him. And as I'm, I'm again, I'm meandering through Walmart. I'm thinking, what are the things he loves? And that was one of the things. And I, I, I asked him, and he, everybody in the room is cracking up at this guy, and he's just laughing. And he ate three teaspoons of Hagen Dazs ice cream, and that's the last solid food, real food, that he ate before he passed away. Wow. So after he passed away, I was just kind of thinking about the week, and I was really sad. And I've done work called Landmark Education, and one of the things that Landmark says is have a life filled with play, fun, and ease. And I was trying to figure out how can I have play, fun, and ease present, and the love of my life has just passed away. And I thought, yeah. well, let's make a game. Let's make a game out of it, you know. And so I posted. I said, well, you know, and I posted the whole little comment about the yes, because I love that expletive with an S. And I All asked right. my friends, I posted and asked my friends, would you be willing to buy a pint of haagen ice cream on Saturday, the day of the service, and take a picture of yourself eating this, spooning it in, is how I, how I worded it, in honor of Kent, just to post a picture. Wow. Well, then I thought, so wouldn't that so be So that's cool? how it started. That's wow. how it started. Then I had a second wow. challenge. Would you change your cover photo on your Facebook page to haagen Butter Pecan? And then the third huh. one was, would you make a request to haagen to change the cover photo on their Facebook page to Butter Pecan? And I had hmm. over, I don't know, almost 200 likes and people being willing to do it with me within probably 12 hours. Well, I have two good friends, one a sorority sister, Ms. Carla Cargill, and my best friend here in Atlanta, one of my best friends, Sabrina Alvin, who actually called haagen Corporate U.S. and made this request. So Sabrina's wow. request was about 4 o'clock, and she said, somebody called about this earlier. She said, I'm going to push this through. I'm pushing it through. So they close at 8 p.m. at quarter to 8 that Friday night, the 9th of January. Hagen Dazs changed the cover photo on their Facebook page to Butter Pecan and overnighted 100 free Hagen Dazs coupons for ice cream and a letter, handwritten letter of condolence to the church that we received on that Saturday. So then I pushed it even further, Mike, and I said, Well, that doesn't change lives. I want to change lives. So I made a request to Hagen Dazs, and everybody started bombarding them with this possibility of a Kent. Hagen does for Kent 52 by 52. Kent was 52 years old when he passed away. I wanted them to, for 52 days, donate 52 cents from each pint of Hagen does butter pecan to the American Lung Association, which is a proponent of this early screening. And we were inundating them. So finally, I get this message, direct message from Hagen does. Carla, would you please inbox us directly? I'm like, oh my God. So I made him a request. I said, how can we partner and change some lives? Now they made a small contribution, $520 contribution to the American Lung Association in Kent's name. And I told them that our plan then is to start a foundation about screening, early screening for high-risk patients for lung cancer, and would they be willing to be a part of that? They told me to keep them posted. So that's how that went down. And we had 1,000 likes on the Haagen-Dazs Butter Pecan page. I think over three or 400 people took pictures, changed their cover photo, and posted that for, on haagen So it was pretty fun. And now all that happened with, within about 72 hours, and people are still posting haagen and talking about Butter Pecan and how it makes them think of Kent and his love for me and my love for him. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm looking at the Haggadah's Facebook page right now, and uh, well, 1,245 likes of that cover photo, and um, 131 comments and 44 shares of that cover photo. Um, and uh, it's still at the top, and as of as of right now, it is still the cover photo of Haggadah's USA. Uh, and um, so... Yeah, it just it's and, and you know for even even now, but but for a solid week, I mean my my Facebook uh, timeline um, showed all these people uh, <laughs> with 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 uh, butter pecan, um, and um, you know and, and and to just let people know, you know, Carl and I have never you know we've we've known of each other, but we've never met each other uh, right. in person until right now. Uh, right. and, uh, you know, I, I know I, I wanted to write about it and, and I talked about it on, on my website and tried to get more people to know about this. Um, and it's just been fascinating. Just the show of love, um, mm-hmm. and, and recognition and appreciation, um, for, for you and Kent. Uh, it's just been amazing that it happened so quickly and it just snowballed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this momentum is still kind of going. Uh, it, it's yeah. it's just been fascinating to see uh, as an outsider. <laughs> it's been pretty great and pretty exciting. And um, I cannot thank all of the friends of the friends of the friends of the friends of my friends on Facebook who have been have sent me messages of condolence and and how inspired they've been. And you know, other fifty year old women, you know, who get that there's a chance for love for them and how many men have sent me messages saying that they would just they would do anything to be loved that way to have someone committed to them that they would matter that much to someone so i'll just say that it's it's totally possible um it, everything is within the realm of possibility um that we don't have to live lives that are stagnant that we can dream and hope and be dream weavers for each other and make dreams come true and have miracles happen and my husband has has passed away, but the the depth of the love and support and the the the, the deepening of my relationships because of the way that he loved me and the way that he loved me to the minute that he died has made a difference in the way that I love others. Hmm. Wow. And, and you've already kind of just just said this right now, but to other 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 things that that you. That you have learned about yourself, or Kent helped teach you about yourself during this whole, you know, journey, which seems like it was just yesterday, but it, it seems like it's, it's been a long time. You know, I I think that I was sort of cynical and probably pretty cynical about true love. Um, I love the the Disney princesses. My friends and I color the Disney princesses. Um, I love the whole idea of a Prince Charming. Um, And then I've watched, you know, Frozen and Maleficent and watched the way that we define love, the kind of true love, that true love's first kiss, that what true love is transcend the whole stranger coming riding in on a horse to being able to be your sister who kisses you and saves your life, being able to then see it as a godmother who kisses you and, and brings you back to life, that love, that that overreaching, you know, life-changing love does not have to be a romantic one, that we can transcend and make love change people's lives. And, again, the mother-daughter, the, the siblings, the, the, the coach for his 
for his uh, his athlete. You know, we have a coach, a good friend of Kent's that just was so inspiring. So I, I think that I, I was cynical, and now I, I think that anything's possible. Um, he also got me to really get that the priority of my life is making a difference for as many people as I can, but also first being willing to look in the mirror and love myself so much that I would know without him having to say a word to me just how great I am and how beautiful I am and how lovable I am. And I had never done that before. Wow. Um, and, and and what do you have to say to people who are your friends or even strangers who have um, helped with this kind of this Hagen Dawes awareness or the hundred people who are listening to this show right now live and, and the the many people who will be listening to the show after after we record this. What what do you have to say to them as far as, you know, um yeah, you know, how how they've helped to amplify uh your story. Well, you know, I think that each of us individually don't really feel that we can make a difference. Um and, and I think, yeah, maybe sort of, kind of, but I think that if we have some really great idea and we're willing to open our mouths and share it, then look at how people can just jump on board with you. Not just jump on board to have cute pictures on Facebook, but to jump on board to inspire a woman whose husband is passing, to to jump on board to band together as a family almost because then you would see people communicating with each other on the, you know, the feed of a someone's picture that I know didn't know each other. People liking each other's comments, replying to each other's comments, you know, saying, yeah, I second what she said. Then people becoming friends of people, people friending me through, you know, three generations of Facebook friends. I mean, we've made just this humongous connection. I probably doubled my followers, and I think I had 500 to begin with, just because people were inspired by the love. You know, and, and by posting pictures of my husband losing 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 pounds, but being willing to share it, to post that last picture on Christmas on New Year's Eve where, you know, he's, he's sick. He, we're in the hospital. You can see it. He's sick. He's not smiling, but I'm smiling and being willing to say Happy New Year from us because this is us and this is where we are right now. And then I don't have to be afraid of what's happening to, my, to me. I don't have to be afraid of what's, what's real. And I can share that and get all the support in the world and, and, and change people's lives just by being willing to be vulnerable and being willing to tell my story and being willing to be obedient to my husband who said, show it all so they can see God's love. Uh, and kind of what is your, and you, you referenced it already, but what is your kind of your, your call to action or, or your challenge to people who are, who are joining, joining your story here? Is it, is it to, you know, support, um, organizations like the American Lung Association or what, 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 what is the change that, that you want to see come through as, you know, from, from, from a public health and from a patient okay. perspective when, when it comes to this diagnosis? So I'd say, you know, first of all, really, truly, lung cancer awareness, I don't think I even knew, you know, that just like ovarian cancer, when this is found, it's already a death sentence for people. You know, it's found at such a late stage. So my first push for public health is earlier diagnosis, I'm sorry, earlier screening to 
to get diagnosis for high-risk patients. You know, I, I was thinking about, you know, prevention. Now, that's not really it for me. My husband was a 30-year smoker. You know, people are still smoking out there. We've got great campaigns on TV, but I still don't think, I'm a doctor and I didn't know that, you know, the number of lung cancer deaths is more than breast, colon, and prostate put together. This is a bad boy and we need to go after it. So earlier screening for high-risk individuals and then more money for research because, again, these genetic markers are changing the face of chemotherapy for lung cancer. So that first. Secondly, then, to really be about the business of my fellows, being about the business of humanity, you know, being about the business of my brothers and sisters, being about the business of making sure that everybody gets to see you smile and everybody gets an opportunity to get a little piece of the best of us every day. And I think we take it for granted. You know, I think that we, um, we're, kind of, we're kind of cynical. We've gotten a little stagnant. We've gotten a little complacent about what it is to be human. And, uh, you know, we get up and do the same stuff different day, and that doesn't work. And, and nothing will change, and nothing will get better if that's the way we live. So I say make sure I, I get up in the morning. My mom used to raise me to say, see if you can profoundly change the life of one person every day. In order to do that, you'd have to be trying and willing to change the life of every person you meet so that that one person's life could be profoundly changed. What would uh, what would Kent say uh, about this tremendous show of love um, that has been happening over the past uh, three weeks? What, what what do you think he was responsible for? What do you think he would say? He would say, Carla Booker, you're crazy. And then he would say, outstanding, just like that. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, And we should uh, should let people know, um, because this has just been an amazing interview and an amazing insight, and I thank you so much for the time. Um, Thank you. But uh, uh, you did announce this morning that uh, you're going to be off Facebook for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, can you share a little bit about um, how that thought process and, and, and how that came about this morning? Sure. You know, so I'm sort of ADHD, undiagnosed and untreated. And uh, I can spin around like the best Tasmanian devil. And I feel like um, I love that the outpouring of love with Facebook at least makes me feel like I'm not alone. And it's very lonely, very, very lonely. I miss him so much. And I think that I'm doing things, keeping myself busy, which was part of the advice, that are keeping me from really allowing this grief process to happen. And um, so my my devotional this morning was, I think it was Exodus 14, 14, but it talked about something about, you know, being silent and allowing God to fight for me. And I just took that to heart. And so I'm going to spend the next seven days at least, maybe I'll extend it, in some silence. Like I drove to work this morning and didn't have the radio on. That's unheard of. I'll go to sleep tonight <laughs> without the TV on. I sleep with the TV on because I don't like the quiet. So I'm going to let I'm going to let God fight for me, and I'm going to really try to be still and and quiet. And um, Facebook is such a big part of my life right now because I've got so much support and love there. And I'm going to let God fight for me and let God fight with me. And I'm going to let God be with me. I'm going to do some stillness for about seven days and see how that goes. So be praying for me, y'all. Yes, yes. Um, and I guess as we uh, as we start to close up, um, 
what uh, what, what insights? Because there are a lot of um, loved ones, or a lot of spouses who are who are grieving the loss of their loved ones. Um, what what can you share from your unique perspective uh, as far as um, you know how how to um, uh, let them know you know how to kind of try to get through this? And I know that this is, it is one day at a time for you. I understand, um, mm-hmm. but for people who are in a similar situation to where you're at, uh, what uh, what can you share with them? Well, it's something I said to Kent once, and it might sound kind of mean. But I told him kind of early in the diagnosis when I started feeling just a little left out, you know, he was making sure that he had dinner with people and all this stuff. And I I just needed some personal time. And I told him, I said, Kent, just because you have cancer doesn't mean you're more important than me. And I think I said it kind of pouty, kind of like a six-year-old. But it was really poignant. It was really true. And I have on my my lock screen on my phone, it says, Carla, self-love first. Not selfish self-love, but, you know, put the oxygen mask on yourself first when the plane's going down. I've learned what self-care is. And so I'd say as soon as a diagnosis is made, absolutely be there for your loved one, but tap into the American Cancer Society's, you know, grief support and the caregiver support. Um, I'm reading a book right now called Good Grief that was recommended by my therapist. Um, and, and then I had a resident, I'm going to call you out, Dr. Barbara Joy Jones, you gave me the best advice by text, my favorite mode of communication that said, whatever you feel like doing, do that. If you want to cry, if you want to stay in the bath all day, if you want to read scripture, if you want to listen to music, if you want to go for a walk, if you just want to go to sleep, whatever, when that, that first 24 hours, just let your body, let your mind, let it do what it is that it feels that it wants to do and everything's okay. Then make sure you're getting keyed in. Tonight I, I did went to my women's support group a little bit early, so I'm talking out loud about what I'm feeling. My 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 brain says go curl up in a ball somewhere. Nobody wants to hear this. It's too much. It's too much emotion. But that's not taking care of myself. I feel like I should write a book that's that's called Self Care for Type A Personalities, because it's so hard for me as a go-getting person that I am to stop and actually take some time for myself and make sure I'm eating right make sure that I'm providing balance, make sure I'm spending time with my girlfriends, making sure that I'm spending time with my children, that I'm telling people what's going on, that when someone asks how you're really doing, that I'm sure that I've at least told one person that day how I'm really doing. So it's really self-care first. And then you have so much more of yourself to give because it's such a lonely, the caregiving is, is very, 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 very consuming in every way and emotionally just heartbreaking sometimes. You know, and I, I, I said this to friends, you know, I'd, we'd have a deterioration of, of status, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd have a bad test result or something wouldn't go our way or, you know, he'd have the anemia or something. And each time I'd cry really, really hard and then I'd kind of course correct and then do what needed to be done each day, keep my balance until the next thing would happen. And then I'd cry really, really hard and I didn't cry around him that much. You know, I, I tried not to do that um, because I just, I felt like it would be, it might be harmful, you know, that it might, it might make him lose hope. Um, but there were times that we cried together, and, and it just wasn't the way we planned it. Um, but be willing to be authentic and be willing to share with at least one person every day what's really going on so you don't stuff it and uh, get resentful. I guess that's what I'd say. Um, 
Wow. I mean, this is uh, Dr. Carla Booker has been my guest. Uh, and uh, um, before we close up, I'll, I'll give you a, a, maybe a, a couple of minutes to kind of gather some, some closing thoughts for our, for my audience and, and for all of our your friends uh, and, and strangers um, mm-hmm. who have been listening to this, but uh, just to kind of uh, just give my little bit of reflection on our, on our past hour of, of, of conversation. I, I really want to thank you for the time. I want to thank you for being so candid just to let the audience know um, you know, Carla gave me no restrictions. She said, Mike, you can ask about anything and, and, and Kent would want that. Um, so I could ask about anything. Um, and it's been, it's been a very insightful, uh, conversation. Uh, and, you know, um, I, I hope that we can even, you know, continue this. Um, cause, cause I think that the, the, the topic of self-care is something that is, uh, needs to be talked about more, especially mm. with physicians, um, oh, yeah. And I think that that is something that I've talked about before to really try to, to key on maybe this year with my guests, uh, because that is something that is is definitely taboo. It is not something that's talked about. It is right. it is something um, we're, we're taught, um, even in residency, to just um, get on with it and sleep is for the weak and don't show any weakness and this and that right. and, and right. keep all your emotions inside and and um, um, I, I think that's kind of turning just just with the mm-hmm. people that I've talked to and the literature that I've read that that self-care is not only important for caregivers, meaning family members, but caregivers, mm-hmm. meaning physicians and nurses and other health professionals um, as well. And uh, uh, you really gave that that kind of insight um, that uh, that I think we need to continue this conversation. Um, so that, that that's one of the the many things that I, I that I've drawn from from our conversation tonight. But but as we kind of close things uh, up, Carla, do, what uh, what kind of closing thoughts do you have with regards to with the Kent and Carla story and 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 kind of closing thoughts for our audience here this evening as as we finish up our conversation? I guess I'd first want to say that Facebook rules. Um, Skype is the bomb, and the Internet is the greatest invention ever. Um, It gave me the love of my life, um, and I challenge each and every one of you to do something to, for, or with the people that mean the most to you every day that says, I love you. That that is short and sweet and just kind of... (laughs) Sums up the whole thing, um, you know, Carla. I, I'm really looking forward to to meeting you in person and giving you a big hug, um, uh, giving a big hug through the internet right now, uh, be, because um, you know this this is our first conversation that we've had, and and I know that, that uh, just with talking with you and, and exchanging emails and things that we're probably gonna be. Uh, good friends for a long time. Uh, let's do it. Let's do some more. Let's do some more talking on the on the on the blog radio thing. This is just so cool. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so thank you so much for the time. Um, and I want to thank everybody for, for joining us here uh, this evening. And, and to, just this response, and I was sharing with Carla before before the show, is that, you know, I, I put this announcement on my Facebook page. And, and um, you know, I got over 200 likes, which doesn't happen to me. Uh, and it just show, shows me the, the response and the love of, of uh 
uh, of the people out there uh, and, and how you're connected with them and how you're connected with, with you and Kent and your story. Uh, it's just yeah. been fascinating for me to kind of see uh, as an outsider, um, just like you said, you know, the social media is awesome uh, and, yep. and, and to see it out there. So um, I, th- I think that's it. So <laughs> I'm just, I'm just like Mike, mentally, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for the opportunity, exhausted. really. Right? And, you know, I, I, these thoughts are going through my head all the time, so you can imagine how tired I am. And I worked all day today. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. A full, a full day today. That's right. um, so, Carl, thank, thank you so much for the time. I'll definitely follow up with you after the show. Um, and we can continue our conversation here, uh, but it, it's it's been such a joy to for you to share your story. And uh, um, you know, I I know some some good is going to come with, come of this. Um, I've already yes. seen it already, and uh, yes. I think this is I see this kind of new calling for you, and it'll be interesting to kind of see that evolve as as time goes on. All righty, I appreciate you so much, Mike. Okay, thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Uh, all right, kids. Um, that's the show. Um, that is just, um, I can't, uh, uh, I'm going to need to listen to this show like two or three times to kind of just, um, process kind of, kind of what happened. Um, and, uh, that's telling me that, that I really miss this format as far as bringing the show back and, and I wish I had more time to do these more, but, uh, um, but I'm making a commitment to you, my all my fans out there. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, uh, my name is uh, Dr. Mike Sabella. You can check me out at drmikesabella.com. Um, and that gives you all of my social media uh, accounts, which Carlos says is awesome, which I, I include, which I definitely agree with. Uh, so Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and this podcast uh, and the website and all that stuff. Uh, so that is it for our show here this evening. And uh, thank you for joining me. And, uh, yeah, give me a shout-out on Twitter. Give me a shout-out on, on Facebook. Uh, and for those of you friends uh, of Carla, um, she's not online now, but definitely leave her some messages um, on her uh, Facebook page, uh, giving some feedback about the show. So uh, everybody have a good week, um, and we will talk to you all very, very soon. My name is uh, Mike Savilla, and uh, everybody have a great evening and a great night. See ya. Together